So good afternoon, everyone. Um, really pleased this afternoon to be having uh, this podcast with um, with Karen Charrick, um, as you all know, the current acting chair of GPC England and one of our own, uh, Lincolnshire GP. Um, I'm really pleased to be able to talk to Kieran today um, about the uh, recently announced new um, GP contract. Um, so welcome, Kieran. Thanks, Reid, and probably not so welcome in imposed contracts, but it's nice to be here to talk to you about it anyway. Indeed, yes, quite right. We really welcome the opportunity for you to go through things with us. Um, the objective on the podcast today is to go through all the, the uh, updates in the imposed contract, as Kieran says, um, to talk about some of the positives, perhaps, but also the concerns that we will have um, in Lincolnshire general practice and, of course, on a national level, which Kieran and his team are working hard and have worked really hard to try and um, resolve those concerns. But unfortunately, we've, you've, I think you've struggled against a government that don't want to give an awful lot to support general practice. Is that fair to say, Kieran? Yes, it, I mean, it would seem that, you know, we have a, a government that thinks that general practice isn't doing a very good job, even though we're doing two million more appointments in February than we did in February the previous year and pre-pandemic numbers we're doing significantly more but that that's not good enough and there, there seems to be uh, a rhetoric in the press probably led by politicians that the general practice is not doing what it should do now we know that there's going to be a GP access recovery plan but the the things we've seen in that is it's just going to be asking us to work harder even though we've got fewer GPs um, We've seen that public sector um, pay and public sector services haven't really been supported by the current government. Um, and we believe that you know, that's the same with the NHS, you know, junior doctors, consultants, all, all taking action and general practice feeling significantly squeezed by a contract that just isn't really fit for purpose. Um, so we went into this year's uh, round of negotiations trying to not get um, significant re extra investment but just extra investment so that general practice can do what it needs to do which is care for patients um, and yeah you, you'll have seen the outcomes of that. Yeah and I think um, it, what you allude to there I mean the, the, the rhetoric is one of the biggest things for practice I mean we work we've always worked really really hard and we want to do the best for our patients don't we um, uh, but to be told you need to work harder when you're already delivering more than you ever have with more scarce resources is particularly challenging. And I think one of the things that all practices are finding really difficult at the moment, because that 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 um, propaganda rhetoric is, is strong in the national uh, media. But, and yes, we see the outcomes of the uh, negotiations. Um, and I guess that's what led to the contract being imposed then, I guess, really, that disconnect between the reality on the ground and the perception, perhaps. Yes, I mean, we went into negotiation wanting to make it easier for practices to deliver patients uh, the services they need, and we want to deliver to them. You know, so reduce our bureaucracy, so stop making us tick boxes all the time. You know, Coif and IIF need to be paired back significantly. Um, there's significant rises in things like cost of paying our staff, the national minimum wage has gone up, national insurance contributions have gone up. Uh, you know, we've got to increase our costs of running the businesses, you know, heat and light, medical supplies and everything else that have gone up because of inflation. And these are all things that you couldn't have predicted when we had the agreement in 2019 for the five year framework. So we we went in asking for those small changes and um, increase you know, support for practices to run the businesses um, and reduce that bureaucracy. Um, and we don't think those are big asks. And in fact, so many other people have said we need to reduce bureaucracy. The Hewitt report only yesterday said we need to stop targeting um, target driven um, 
contracts. We also, you know, the, the Health and Social Care Select Committee last year, um, which was chaired by the now Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. You know, all of these things are saying reduce bureaucracy for general practice. But when we went into negotiation, that wasn't what was done. In fact, extra targets were added in, in arbitrary targets. I've spoken to patient groups and they say, well, the two week target, what, why two weeks? Why not two weeks in one day? Why not Why not 13 days? You know, they're arbitrary targets and no evidence behind the targets. Um, and so, you know, we were really concerned that those things were, were, were being brought in without there being extra support. Now, if we'd suddenly had significant investment in more care navigators, you know, more doctors coming online, uh, significant changes to ARS roles so that we could do more um, clinical work. Uh, but those things aren't there. I mean, even if we've had extra funding, the, the people just aren't there. So whilst we were asking for a small support with reducing bureaucracy and support with practices being able to keep their doors open, um, that was roundly no. And so therefore, you know, the, the committee met and agreed to not accept the, the contract and so therefore it's been imposed upon us. Yeah, and it's a real shame when you will have clearly um, articulated the concerns, the real concerns that every practice is facing. And as you rightly say, it's not just funding, that is crucial in, 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 in the ability to provide this high quality and safe service for practices. But it, it is having those colleagues that, that we can recruit to, to be our workforce, um, which is crucial and that we're, we're really struggling with. So um, I totally agree that when we hear figures from our uh, governmental colleagues about how many more GPs are going to be or ARS colleagues, that's only if we get them in post and it's artificially um, skewing the perception for patients who are understandably as a result expecting a very different service to they might encounter due to workflow yeah. shortages and those yeah. economic pressures. I mean we, we acknowledge that there are has been significant investments in our AORS colleagues and we welcome that we welcome having a larger multidisciplinary team and I think that's a good development in general practice um, but a number of places can't recruit AORS staff um, and so therefore it creates a postcode lottery which is bad for patients um, the other thing is that you know patients when you ask them they want to see a GP um, and you know we have to counter that argument by saying well actually you know a nurse is you know, perfectly good and you know in some places better than a GP at certain conditions. A physio is definitely going to be better for some things. A podiatrist is definitely better at feet. Um, and, and you know that's great but the patient then says well if I've got a foot problem but a back problem and an eye problem and an ear problem you know I, I go to a GP because we you know we are specialist generalists uh, and we agree with that. And also there's a long-term relationship being built up and continuity of care has been developed. So the new roles you know our, our patients we, we, what we need to do is make sure our patients understand what the new roles are. But also we need to realise and government needs to realise there is a limitation to what ARRS roles can do. So you can't replace a GP with a couple of ARRS roles. You really need, every GP needs maybe six replacement ARRS roles. So all of the GPs, we've got 2,000 fewer GPs now than we had when we were promised 6,000 more. So an 8,000 gap there. Um, but you can't replace that with more ARS roles. You have to, you know, if you if you if you multiply the number eight eight thousand by you know six, that's probably the number of ARS roles you would need. So the twenty six thousand we've got are welcome, but it's just not nearly enough to fill that gap. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the 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 dichotomies we face, isn't it? That we want these additional colleagues, um, and we want to be able to provide more services and get the right person seeing the patient at the right time. It's just that. 
all those colleagues aren't in place right now. Um, and there's more and more work coming into general practice from secondary care, et cetera, isn't there? So it's, uh, it's, it's quite a storm of challenges for general practice. And I think it, particularly continuity, which I'm sure we'll touch upon as we go through the uh, contract update, um, and is, is, is something that we need to reflect upon as part of the Hewitt report as well. Um, I think that's crucial. That's what we really care about, I think, at the end of the day in general practice. It's one of the core things that helps us look after our patients, and we don't want to lose that. Um, so if it's all right with you, Kim, we'll now kind of go through the different sections of the contract update. Um, for the listeners, um, there's a really useful contract uh, summary um, update on the uh, BMA website. Um, we can uh, add the link um, to our social media for you, um, but we'll go through that um, in the order it appears on the document. So when you listen to this podcast, it might be useful to have that in front of you as well to reference uh, and link other documents. Um, so one of the first things there, Kieran, and I think a lot of colleagues will be acutely aware of it, is, is that the, the new changes around access um, and patients um, having an assessment at the point of contact. Um, I don't know what um, your thoughts are on that and, and obviously the potential um, increased challenges that might bring for practices. But this is something that you know we would all probably think we would want to aspire to you know when a patient feels they have a, a need for that to have, have be assessed um, but as an aspiration it's something we should maybe be moving towards but actually to be able to achieve that now is, is it's unachievable and some practices can do it some practices have the capacity they have the, the care navigator the clinical staff to do it but for a number of practices, this is just totally unachievable. Um, so the, the requirement is that anybody who contacts the practice should have an assessment of their clinical need on the day that they contact you, and then they should receive either an appointment or be signposted to another service, or um, you should then be able to go backwards and forwards to get further information using IT or, or whatever tools you want. Um, that's fine if you have the capacity to take all of those calls or those contacts, but a number of practices won't have that capacity. So, um, and also at what point do we say, actually we've reached capacity and we have to send you somewhere else. So, you know, if 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 a certain number of patients call and for every clinician, that, that those clinicians have, have done 25, 30 uh, bits of advice to the patient that day, should the practice the should practice should have a way of then saying I'm sorry that clinicians now made enough clinical decisions if they start doing more decisions they'll burn out they'll start making bad decisions and potentially harm the patient what we should have is every locality should have a way of flagging to their system to say all the clinicians who we've got are um, you know overloaded with work we can't do any more so what what's going to happen and what we're advocating is that every system has a, an escalation plan so that if a practice or group of practices or the whole system is overloaded, there is a way of dealing with that by either invoking a, um, a, an urgent treatment centre or saying, actually, you don't need to do any of your chronic disease management for this period of time whilst you're overloaded. Um, but having a locally agreed escalation plan so that when practices hit that point is really important. So this, uh, this actual target in the GMS contract it's you have to provide an assessment of a patient's clinical need um, on the day. So what you can't do is say call back tomorrow or um, whatever. What you can do is say, well, like, we don't have the, the capacity today. So send in an, um, a message. We'll assess it. We'll look at the clinical need based on your um, what you put into the uh, Ask My GP or whatever tool you're using. And then we can then give you an appointment based on that. The, the, the main purpose behind this was to remove the eight o'clock rush 
and people being told call back tomorrow, call back tomorrow, and call back tomorrow. Uh, and we know that often the most vulnerable people are the people who can't get through. So we can understand the reason, the, understand the aspiration, but our argument is, well, give us the workforce, give us the training, give us the IT tools to make this possible, but don't put it into our contract this year. Unfortunately, it isn't a contract this year, which is why we rejected it and it's had to be imposed. Yeah, thanks, Karen. That's a, a useful sort of summary around that particular point, which which will cause concern for a lot of practices. I think it's multifaceted, isn't it? You're quite, you're quite right. Having the capacity to to potentially deal with additional requests from patients will be a real challenge for some practices um, at a time for all the reasons we've already talked about. Um, I think um, avoiding the ATM rush, I, I, I kind of understand that, and it must be frustrating for patients trying to get through. We've all, you know, at times contacted our own registered GP when we have had a problem or family member, and and it, it can be challenging. But that's because a lot of people are trying to access us, and I guess it's there's also an element of having the right people trying to access us for appropriate things when there are alternate pathways that patients may take. I, I personally, one of my concerns is if we this requirement. Um, it, you might we might avoid some some of the ATM rush, but it's what happens if you have significant rushes towards the end of the day when you've already used all your safe capacity that you've already talked about. So the devil will be in the detail to a degree, um, and I guess the other concern is is how this will be portrayed by uh, the, our public um, in terms of do we face a increased risk or de uh, demand for low acuity problems and concerns that they may not fielded to general practice before, but feel that they are able to get a, a sound and clinical assessment immediately for things. So there's a danger there, I think, isn't there, for us and for system colleagues, if there is a significant upsurge in the already very high demands that we see. Uh, we are seeing um, a, a, an increase in our workload, you know, doing two million more appointments this February, that's 100,000 more appointments every day across England's general practices. Uh, and we're seeing it in every practice in every locality that, that we're having more contacts and some of them are low acuity, but some of them aren't. You know, these are people who are under hospital specialists on waiting lists to be seen or to have a definitive treatment. And they, they aren't getting that because the hospitals are, are exceptionally busy as well. So they're coming to us and that's that's right. So our workload has gone through the roof. So that reduces our capacity to deal with the sort of the less um, urge, you know, the less acu uh, acute things. Or, you know, the sort of the, the minor illness things, it means that we have less capacity to deal with that. There is a conversation to be had about in the future, is general practice the right place to handle all of that triaging and, and signposting and care navigation? And, and that's, I think, one of the things that the Hewitt Review um, would have looked at is the wholesale review of the, the GP contract. You know, do we take away that front door of, of the NHS from general practice and put it somewhere else? Now, I'd love to have that conversation with Department of Health and NHS England um, as your national representative and come up with a plan. Now, it might be that it, general practice is the right place, but if it is, we need extra investment and extra resources in terms of people, extra resources in terms of telephony, extra resources in terms of the space to put for people in the telephony. Um, so, you know, but that's the conversation we need to have, because if we continue the way we are, we're going to have more GPs and practice staff giving up because of it's an undoable job. And that's bad for patients because everybody, every person who leaves general practice means that there's one less receptionist to answer the phone or one less GP to look after the 2,200 patients they have on their books. Uh, and it's just a, a snowball. Uh, and so we need to have that conversation with NHS England and the Department of Health as soon as possible to decide what the new contract will look like um, so that we can provide the care to patients that they need.
Yeah, 100% agree agree with that. We we need to make it safe and sustainable for our colleagues and for our patients, and that will require significant investment in in multiple elements of general practice and the wider NHS, of course. Um, I, I, I do agree. This is an opportunity, although it's a challenge. The access requirement. It's an opportunity to to work with your systems to see what. Um, response can be what additional services could be put in place across a, a system or, or, or a smaller footprint um, because this is what we needed anyway um, we needed that additional support how it will work I guess is for each system to to think about uh, and work with our local commissioners um, but it's something we certainly need and patients do need it at the end of the day patients have more mobility uh, and medical conditions than ever before and we need to safely manage that don't we yeah um, in terms of this element of the GMS contract, um, obviously we've got in the new in the PCN DES, we've got the um, access requirements as well for this coming contractual year or the current contractual year now. Um, do you see uh, anything that perhaps you need to consider with those two elements um, that are very similar? Well, the, the, the COF and the IIF elements of access uh, are similar in that there's, a, there's an element there of doing some quality improvement work around access. And we think that that's very sensible. Um, you know, looking at your access and seeing how you can improve it, you know, by moving to cloud-based telephony or moving to a total triage system, whatever it is that's best for your practice, you know, have a look at it. And then you should hit the, hit the targets for that. The thing we are most concerned about is if we are, measured on access and patient satisfaction because whilst we haven't had the investment in extra staff and all the other things I've already mentioned you know we're going to see maybe incremental improvements but we're not going to see wholesale changes um, now 85 percent of practices already hit the the two-week target um, for most appointment patients so that that's fine but what worries me is that the practices who have the highest deprivation have the highest morbidity morbidity and mortality are the ones that you struggle to recruit and therefore struggle to provide the services and so again it's going to worsen the inverse care law in that the patients in the most needy areas are the ones who are not going to benefit from this increased investment um so uh, you know i don't think practices should really chase the two-week target because it is just a, a two-week target there's not a huge amount of money in cough or iif for that but I think doing some quality improvement work is a good idea because that will hit the targets for for COF and IIF in terms of the quality improvement. Yeah I think certainly it, there's, there's always something we can learn from another practice some of our colleagues isn't there and um, to work within the the capacity that we've got at the end of the day we can have excellent access but we've only got finite capacity, although we'd love to expand that as we've already touched upon. Um, I mean, I, I, would, I would say it's really important that practices also engage with things like GPAS in Lincolnshire or whatever OPAL system you've got, because that actually is a, a measure that the system will look at to see how busy you are, and also that all areas have this escalation plan. So that, you know, that could be part of your um, quality improvement is that I'm going to measure my access, I'm going to measure my capacity, and we're going to engage with the escalation plan. And that then puts pressure back on ICBs to have an escalation plan that supports practices. And there's a role for you, Reid, as an LMC medical director in that. Yeah, 100%. I think that, that dovetails back into what we were just saying about what additional support and services can be set up within systems. Um, and and GPAS or Opals to feed directly into that, won't they? So I think I think this will certainly help those conversations across across systems, or at least that's what I hope it will do, because um, it's put it front and centre now, hasn't it? 
Um, okay, um, I think that's really useful. I think uh, just in terms of the two weeks, I think you're quite right. Most practices do hit that already, but there's perfectly valid reasons that sometimes people do have appointments after two weeks. So again, the devil on how this is actually implemented and, and, and reviewed is, is going to be one of the main things, I guess. Um, another um, changes or, or, or change to date maybe I mean, is the access to records uh, for patients, which has been delayed and there's been lots of discussion nationally about it of course but now that's due to come online by the 31st of October. Um, I think there were lots of discussions and concerns about it for many reasons which I'm, you may go into again Kieran but I think one of the things that we were we understood would happen as part of the rollout was that there'd be a robust um, redaction software available for all practices so I just wondered where we were with that and how we um, you what you'd say to practices in terms of access to records as the rollout date comes closer. Again, this is this is something we have no concern with the principle of it. We think it's good for patients to have access to their records. Um, it means that they don't contact the practice so much, they have better health understanding, all of those things we agree with. What we don't agree with is doing it when it's not safe. And um, so there's lots of times where letters come in which have information in that it's you know not necessarily safe for the patient to know. Um, you know if they've got a mental health problem or if they're in a coercive relationship, there's access to the records could be harmful. Um, and so what we don't want is for every patient to have access to records when it may be harmful. So what we need to do is roll this out in a way that practices can check that for every patient who requests it that it's safe. Now we don't have the capacity to do that give us the capacity to check every patient and you know we'll roll it out much quicker but at the moment practices are snowed under as we've already said so rolling it out at a time when we don't have the capacity to make sure it's safe by definition by definition is unsafe so we think that's unsafe the other thing that you mentioned is the reduction software so if you get a letter in and there's something in it about a third party for instance you know you don't want mr blogs knowing something about uh, you know having access to something about in there that's about a third party we need to be able to redact that we need to remove it from that letter now if you do that it doesn't always work so we've all had examples of where reduction is you know you redact something in the letter on system one or emis but when you look at the nhs app you can still see it in the letter now that's not safe um, it, it's actually a breach, a data breach. Um, there's also examples of when one person moves from a, a one practice to another, they can see a letter and it was redacted in the first practice, but it wasn't in this, it wasn't carried forward into the second practice. And those sort of things are technical things that need to be sorted out. And it should be simple to sort them out, but until they are, it's not safe to do. So what we need to do is get all these things um, agreed, sorted out. And when that's done, you know, no problem with rolling this out. But until we have this done in a safe and um, way that's supported, so practices have the time and capacity to do it, then it, we don't believe it should be happening. Now, the 31st of October is still a few months away. So maybe by then all of this will have been sorted and um, we shall see. We will wait for any updates, Kieran. I think it's true, though. It's a significant, well, we see it as a significant risk for patients and, and, and ourselves as, as data controllers um, to have these potential breaches, but also the resource it would take without redaction software to go through even a moderately sized patient record is, is not insignificant while we've got so many other work streams that we currently have and, and the new contract will bring along for, for uh, the colleagues that we already face challenges with, as we've said. So yes, we'd welcome uh, that uh, change. And so roll on that with the 31st of October in mind. Um, so I think the next thing was the, the, the sort of cloud-based telephony um, section of the, of the new contract update. Um, and I guess, 
there's there's a lot of reasons that this might be useful in terms of again working at, at, at practices access if there's the issues with uh, accessing the practices by telephone um i guess are the potential concerns around current contracts practices might have for their telephony services or even their cloud-based telephony services um you know running into this uh, new part of the contract um and i think discussions i've heard as some people may be concerned if this is centrally uh, run that there could be some issues or concerns around monitoring and performance management of access and appointment numbers and so on and so forth for practices. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. So we've been reassured by NHS England that anyone who moves to the framework providers um, of cloud-based telephony, that they will not be more expensive. Now, we've already had examples where that isn't the case. We've had people who've moved, who've been forced to move, and it's significantly more expensive. So we argued in negotiations that any increased costs should be borne by um, the commissioner, not by the practice. Um, now that hasn't been forthcoming, and so that's a real worry. So we do want to hear of examples through the LMC, if LMCs can share with us any local examples where people have moved from one provider to another and it's, it's significantly more uh, expensive, then let us know. In terms of the, the, the monitoring, again, we've been reassured that there isn't a national way of monitoring uh, access, but what it's, we've been told is that practices will be able to monitor it themselves and PCNs will be able to look at it as a group to see, well, actually, you know, you're not answering the phone quickly enough, so how can we help with doing that? So it's supposed to be a tool for you to do that. If um, ICBs or NHS England do have the data, then theoretically that's a data breach because unless you've consented for your um, telephony provider to provide that to NHS England, they're sharing your data without your permission. So again, if that happens, we need to know because we can challenge that. Um, you know, you may be asked by your ICB to share your data, and if you choose to share it, then you can. That might be useful because they might be able to then provide you with extra support. But if you don't want to share the data, you don't have to. I think that's really important for practices to know, isn't it? I think uh, we're, we're concerned that, again, going back to your earlier point, that we're being told to do more work because the perception is that we're not doing an awful lot, that, that if we can be sure and clear that, that these sort of metrics aren't going to be used against practices and, and perhaps can be used with, by themselves or, or uh, you know, supportive uh, pieces of work with their PCMs, I think that's that's really useful potentially. Uh, again, learning from each other. But yes, we don't want that additional pressure from, from the rest of the system. And so one of the, the next section is one of the big ones, which I think you touched upon right at the beginning was sort of funding, which is clearly crucial to everything we do to run any service. Um, but um, I think in the face of inflation and, and, and energy costs, I think practices are obviously concerned about uh, uplift in general, and we've seen lots on the on the media about different um, sectors of, of workforces, um, and the junior doctors, train drivers, everybody concerned about pay and funding. So I guess I know you worked hard on this in terms of the exec in the negotiations. Um, so what was the rationale, if you can explain it, from Department of Health and Social Care and HSE about the 2.1% uplift staying at that in the face of all those pressures? Well, the rationale is that's what you agreed to, so take it. Um, and there was no um, further argument made other than that. Um, we argued that, yes, the 2.1% was based on an assumption that inflation would stay around 2.1%. But because of the pandemic and because of the war in Ukraine, it hasn't done. Uh, and actually, government policy changed in, in the five years. 
in that there wasn't expected a significant uplift in the minimum wage. There wasn't a significant um, plan uh, to, to, to have an extra 1.5% on national insurance when we agreed the 2019 to 2024 contract. Those things have come in since. Um, and so we think that they should be out with the five year framework. Um, but unfortunately, um, that argument um, wasn't agreed with. Yeah, I think that's a real shame for the reasons we've already alluded to. Um, have you got a sense um, that things might be, I know inflation is is predicted to come down, although of course last month's uh, inflation was higher than expected, so let's hope that tread is booked rapidly. But is there a sense that maybe from a funding perspective that as we end, as you say, this five-year contract cycle, that then next year's contract when you guys are negotiating it um, might be more supportive financially um, for general practice? Some people may say I'm a fool, but I would say I'm an optimist. Um, I, I read the Hewitt report yesterday, and even though most of it I, I didn't think was uh, that helpful for general practice, what I did think was helpful was that there was comments around investing in prevention and investing in primary care was important, and so that gives me some hope. Um, I also uh, agree that the GP contract needs a wholesale review, and that was mentioned in the, the, the report, and I'm looking forward to early engagement with NHS England and the Department of Health about that. What we think we need is a contract which allows practices mm -hmm trusts GPs to deliver the services they know the patients need and therefore invests in it um, so that we can prevent people becoming ill, prevent people going into hospital, provide the continuity of care that they need. And, uh, you know, having spoken to individuals at the Department of Health and individuals at NHS England, they, they agree with that sentiment. It's just whether the political will is there, and I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, we have an election in the next 18 months and the political party in charge might change. So, but that will be too late, unfortunately, because we need to get this new, new con contract negotiated in, in the next nine months. Yeah, and I think that's certainly an additional challenge for, for uni colleagues, isn't it, in terms of the changing governmental landscape every other Thursday as it felt towards the end of last year. Um, but yes, we, we can be optimistic. And I, I would agree, you know, in the Hugh report, there was lots of sensible things around around the topics you just discussed. And I, I sort of welcomed the the idea that we would stop non-recurrent funding and then stop an end to these tiny little pots with lots of bureaucracy to try and attain them, which we've really felt over the winter period uh, here in Lincolnshire uh, with winter support funding. Um, so that would be welcomed, um, certainly. So it'd be nice to see some of that come to fruition. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll breeze past the other bits that might be slightly more challenging for general practice that were in the report for now. I'm sure that'll be, and we'll talk about that more fully in, in, in maybe another podcast, Kieran. Um, okay, so one thing that really caused practice problems last year, and it feels weird saying last year, it's only a few days ago, was obviously vaccines. And I think practices always work really, really hard to get the children uh, that they look after covered. And, and despite that, some of the issues around being able, unable rather to accept patients for perfectly reasonable uh, reasons, such as vaccinated abroad or parental decline, et cetera, um, they weren't able to do. So in terms of the new contract, there's some changes, um, but what, if you can summarise those and what challenges do we still, still face? Well, the two main changes are that the uh, item of service clawback has been removed, and this was for practices who didn't hit the 50% of children vaccinated. You wouldn't receive any of the item of service 
so for the first 50 percent now that's been removed so that now however many vaccines you give you will get the item of service and that's good because that means that you know there's recognition there of the hard work that perhaps they're doing the second change is that there, is that there have been some minor adjustments to thresholds for the quaff payments for childhood immunizations and they really are minor changes. Um, but that's a positive change uh, in that it does mean that probably 500 plus practices who weren't hitting the targets before will now. Um, and a number of those practices are in the more deprived areas. So what we argued is that practices work very hard to, to try and immunise their population. And uh, you know when they've worked really hard but don't quite hit the target, um, they shouldn't be penalised because often the reason they haven't hit the target is because of vaccine hesitancy or whatever. Um, and then if they are penalised, it means they're less likely to work so hard the next year and the year after. So what we said is, you know, reward people for working hard. So if they can evidence that they've called the patients in two or three times um, and they haven't come or they've got a very good reason why they don't want to have it and, you know, they record a personalised care adjustment, we argued for that, but that, that didn't come to fruition. Um, but at least the targets have changed so that 500 plus practices will will benefit from the threshold changes. Uh, and so, you know, we will be able to do that. Uh, and we would encourage practices to continue working as hard as they are to try and immunise the population because it's a very important kind of preventative measure. Yeah, I think it's, it's a crucial place. We've always, I think, prided ourselves on in general practice, amongst other things. Um, but we really want to continue working hard. And it, it, it is a shame how how challenged they've made it for practices in the last year. Well, the, the slight increasing flexibility around personalization for this current year is is a little bit of help i suppose for practices but we'd like those clear um, abilities to be uh, for any appropriate case where where, pay, where for one reason or another practices have not been able to immunize those children um, but that's another one to be completely resolved next year just 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 one thing on ins and backs we did have agreement from nhs england that anybody who had made a late claim and therefore hadn't received payment for for making a claim you know nhs england would relook at that so if you do have any cases in lincolnshire or anywhere you know do let us know and we'll we'll pass that on to nhs england and they'll look at it and see whether or not um because you know that's work people have done it's just they were very busy doing other work so they forgot to send the claims in in a number of cases so if, if people have got practices which uh, didn't claim on time um, and therefore haven't received payment let us know and we'll we'll, we'll forward that on to nhs england that's great, Karen. Thanks for that extra bit of information. Um, so the next section was was quaff. Um, every practice loves quaff every year. Um, always changes a little bit. So I think what's changed in the new contract from a quaff perspective, Karen? So very little, really. Um, uh, I mean, quaff hasn't changed much. We were hoping to completely payment protect it all so that we could focus on access as as they want us to, um, and you know just continue doing. Um, chronic disease management as and when we've got capacity to do it. Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So there, there, unfortunately, there are also some additional targets so around um, cholesterol management. And um, the main one is that there's the, the access um, QI module. Um, and so it's the, 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 that's the main change. One of the things you will have heard is that there's been some payment protection of the disease registers. But actually, that's not the case at all because uh, you're going to get the payment for the disease registers. But if you don't maintain your disease register, then your prevalence changes and therefore the payments change. 
So you have to maintain the disease registers because it, you rely on it for prevalence and actual um, recall, call and recall. And so actually, even though it's theoretically payment protected, you still have to do the work. Um, so it's not payment protected at all. So so actually, there's no no positive changes within COF really. Yeah, and I think also when at least when the first few days when the contract came out, I think some practices may have misinterpreted that the protection was for all the performance indicators, not just for the disease registers, but it is just for the disease registers, isn't it? It's correct. Yeah. I mean I mean there was some talk about twenty-five percent of quaff being payment protected. So twenty-five percent of quaff is around disease registers, but that's not really being payment protected because you still have to do it. Yeah. Um, it's how it's written on the page, isn't it, Kieran, to make it look like a, a, a positive thing. Um, OK, um, and obviously it's the PCN debts, we've talked about that, including ours, and uh, we haven't really touched on IAF yet, but there are some changes, as we've already alluded to, with, with access, etc. Um, so can you summarise some of the other key changes? And do you think they're actually going to help PCNs and their practices to work more collaboratively and to have better outcomes? Or could it also affect the dynamic, particularly around the access uh, part, depending on how it's um, interpreted? So, so the access part, I, I don't think, should have a negative impact. I think that if practices work together to identify how they, uh, one practices handles access and another one doesn't so well, you can do that. You can share best practice. Um, uh, you know, if 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 in IIF one practice is having good access and another isn't then that could skew it and you know you won't get the money for IIF but it's actually a very small amount of money it's 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 less than a pound a patient so I think if it's something like 50p a patient so actually it's not huge amounts um so I, I don't think that that will have a negative impact on the dynamic within the PCN the only way I can see this actually having an impact on PCNs is that um the value going into um, CD payments the management payments to practice to PCNs has has fallen so actually, the, the cost of running a PCN hasn't gone down, but actually the, the funding for it has. And so is it really worth continuing with the, the work, especially if you don't think you're going to hit the access targets, especially if you think that um, you've got to add in some new service specifications. Now, they're not monitored like the old service specifications, but, you know, adding breast cancer, CVD, sickle cell disease in, um, you know, it, it's extra work. So you're doing extra work, you're getting less funding for management and clinical directors. Um, so, you know, practices will start to think, well, this isn't worth my while, especially if they can't recruit the ARS staff or if they're finding ARS, you know, supervising ARS staff is a, is a burden. You might think, well, actually, is it worth? And actually, I would recommend that every practice looks at our website and looks to see whether, um, you know, the, the guidance on there can help you make a decision around whether being in the PCN DES is, is helping your patients and helping you as a practice. Um, and I think we will see people leaving. Now, we agree with collaboration. We think practices should definitely collaborate and work together. They should work with the system. And long term, that's what we would say. We just feel the PCN DES does, isn't the best vehicle for this. Uh, and so we would recommend practices look at that um, because we're not sure that all of the things within it are, are benefiting our patients. Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly complex for practices within PCNs and the PCN management structures as well with all the different work streams. And and sometimes I think uh, systems, you know, the ICBs maybe struggle a little bit with knowing what PCNs should and should not be doing. And I think um, probably PCNs need to be quite clear in what the DES says 
and therefore do those things rather than taking on additional unfunded work when there's already a lot of pressures on the PCNs and their practices uh, undertaking the, the DES as it is. Um, as you said, there's um, challenges to recruitment to ours roles, but there's been some changes to the ours roles that can be recruited to uh, and some of the numbers, hasn't there? So do you think um, they potentially will be beneficial, such as the cap coming off the uh, number of mental health practitioners uh, that you can have under ours? With respect to the mental health practitioners, I think it's great that the cap has been removed. But my view, and a view expressed by the committee, uh, GPC England, is that actually, if you properly funded the mental health trusts, they would have enough capacity to deal with the work. A lot of the work that's coming into general practice and being dealt with by PCN mental health practitioners is actually work that really should be done either by a community provider or by a voluntary sector service. So whilst um, you know it's welcome having mental health practitioners in our practices, if the system was properly structured and funded, it wouldn't be necessary. Um, in terms of the other roles, so the uh, advanced practitioner nurses, I think that's great. Um, being able to fund nurses through ARS is, is really helpful. My concern again is that you know um, uh, in a lot of places can't recruit them. Um, so. This again worsens the health inequalities. So places with high deprivation, high morbidity and mortality are less easy to recruit to, and therefore, uh, you know, places which which already have um, a, a decent workforce may still be able to recruit. They might then take the ARS funding from a less um, easy, easy to recruit area, um, and so the workforce goes up in an easier to recruit area and doesn't go up in an area such as you know with high deprivation. Uh, um, apprentice Physicians Associates, I think that's a good idea. That's, I think that's a positive thing. Physicians Associates can be really helpful and practices have, have found them very helpful, um, but there aren't that many of them out there. So what we need to do is increase the numbers of physician associates. And one way of doing that is through having apprentices who spend two days a week in practice, seeing patients and helping you with the workload, and two days a week in, in university getting their qualification. And actually, this is a way of fast tracking getting a physician associate. It also means that in your practice, so that you can train them to the way you work and they get to know your patients in your locality from an early stage in their training. And, and I think that's a really good move, actually. Um, but is it my understanding, unless things have changed, that nowhere currently is offering it as a as an option in terms of a course for someone to undertake? Um, I don't know if that's changed. If it if it hasn't, then when it might do. But if it hasn't yet, then it would be a useful role. But it may take a little time for PTN to be able to access it. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure exactly where is offering it as a course at the moment, um, but let's hope that, that in Lincolnshire, the University of Lincoln quickly picks up on this and starts running a course so that we can uh, benefit from this ARS funding. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the DES, you talked about you, we might see um, practices opt out of the DES. So um, obviously there's been opt-out opt window every year so far since the, the PCN DES has been in place. So is there anything different for practices uh, to consider uh, this year um, in terms of their opt-out options? So the, the opt-out window this year is, is April, uh, unless some changes happen to the PCN DES in the rest of the year. So you get an opt-out window once the, the, the PCN change, PCN DES changes. It changes in April because they add new things in and take things away. So you've got an opt-out window now. So now is the opportunity for practices to look and see whether it's worthwhile for them and their patients to stay in. Um, if things change in year, another opt-out window will happen. Yeah. 
Um, that's great. Thanks, Kieran. Um, and in one other item, we talked we talked about our workforce um, and one item on the changes was the GP retention scheme and I've been a, a relaxation around the four session minimum requirement um, for, for, for colleagues to work in, able, in order for them to be under the scheme. So do you think that will help uh, a significant number of our colleagues remain in general practice and keep that workforce as, as boosted as we can? I hope so. I mean, this is meant to keep people in the workforce who are seriously considering leaving. So for whatever reason, age, ill health, caring responsibilities, if you're thinking that you're going to leave the profession, um, but actually, you know, some support with your CPD and some support for a practice to, to employ you, um, that that's what the retainer scheme is for. We have concerns around the way it's administered because it's administered locally. So some ICBs have lots of retainers because they they keep the pot and they use it just for that. In other areas, they have very few. Um, I think Lincolnshire is an area with very few retainer GPs, and that's because the pot isn't ring fenced um, and therefore you know it can be spent on other things. We also think there's a missed trick with retention in that you know we argued that you shouldn't just be down to a retainer scheme we should be aiming to retain all senior gps in fact all gps because you know we're losing people hand over fist and something needs to be done to make the job doable um, and sustainable and um, otherwise people will just continue to leave um, and uh, so even though this is a positive step in increasing it from four to six sessions that a retainer can be employed by a practice um, we really need to be making sure that all GPs are retained. The other thing is that we argued that the new to partnership scheme should continue um, because that encourages people to, you know, um, you know, go from sessional to becoming a contractor. But unfortunately, the new to partnership scheme isn't continuing, um, which again is, is a misstep by NHS England and the Department of Health. Yeah, I'd agree. That would have been really useful for potential colleagues to, to utilise to help support what essentially, uh, you know, part personal opinion helps to strengthen um, general practice at the moment, partners and all our obviously GP colleagues and allied colleagues working really hard. We need a good core, core general practice partnerships uh, at the heart of those to help support our patients. Um, thanks, Kim. So that, that was all the bits that are on the, the BMA document on the contract changes. Um, one bit that isn't on there, but um, obviously is in, in the contract, was about the um, the pay transparency for, for GPs. So I guess, um, what's the current expectation in terms of um, pay transparency and what do colleagues need to be aware of? So the expectation in the contract is that anyone who earned 156,000 in the year 2021 should declare their income by um, the end of April 23. So that's this year. Um, so you'd have to go online, register to declare your income and then declare your income. Um, so that includes sessional doctors, locum doctors, anyone who um, uh, um, earned over 156,000. Now, as a sessional doctor myself, I don't actually have a clause in my contract to say that I should declare my income. So I don't have to this year because I don't have a clause in my contract, even if even though I didn't earn that, I would like to have a patient to add. Um, the, um, uh, but what the, the, the contractors should be trying to get the clause into the, the contracts of their sessional doctors. So there's guidance about how to do that on our website, the BMA website. Um, you, you know, if your sessional doctor says no, they don't want to have it added in, then you can't force them to. Um, but you should have a look at the guidance, which shows you how you can add it in or and if, if professional doctors are happy to it, it should be added as a clause. 
anyone you're taking on as a new contractor, as a new sessional doctor, it should be in their contract. So the GP contract now says that you have to do that. So for contractors, if you've received a contract variation from your commissioner to say that you declare, then you have to declare because it's in the contract. But if you haven't received a contract variation, then you don't have to declare because it's not actually in your contract. The regulations have changed, but your your individual practice contract hasn't. So if you haven't received a contract variation, you don't need to declare. If you have received a contract variation, you should. Now we've had the question, well, what happens if um, I don't declare? Well, if theoretically you're in breach of contract. Um, so if you don't declare, if you earned over 156,000, you don't declare, your ICB can come to you and say, well, why haven't you declared? And you can say, well, how do you, why do you think I should have declared? Um, and they might then say, well, we know you earned over 156,000. You can say, well, how do you know I earned over 156,000? So there's questions there about how it can be monitored, how it can be verified. And also, if you if you haven't declared, you should get a, um, a remedial notice to say that you should remediate the breach in the contract, which means you then let declare late. Um, and you can then, if you then don't declare, you would be in breach of contract. So what happens? Your practice contract could be removed or, or, or ended. Um, but then who's going to provide services to your patients? I mean, I can't say what you should and shouldn't do, except you should definitely read our guidance, which is on the BMA website. Just say, look for BM, um, GP pay declaration. And there's lots of things in there about, you know, have you received a contract variation? Um, how do you pass this on to your sessional doctors who work for you? Um, and, um, and you know, how is it going to be verified by the, the CCG? Yeah, I think they're really important points, Kieran. I think, um, um the document how colleagues would declare um is is on the contract documents that was that was uh, came out with a new contract um and it includes lots of registering for a portal and declaring things on a portal etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a bit of work that colleagues would need to do i guess it's really a real shame that we're at this point i think given we are being singled out as a profession in terms of um, pay transparency, aren't we? Um, and I think colleagues are concerned about potential harms if they did earn over that threshold um, and declare it, that that might cause problems between themselves and their patients. Um, and, and, and that rhetoric and perception we talked about earlier could be propagated further when actually, um, in a lot of cases, these colleagues are the ones who worked, like a lot of people, very, very hard through COVID doing additional sessions, clinics, vaccinations, et cetera, and, and, and feel that might be getting penalised for that. Um, yeah. And is there, a, is there a patient benefit, I think, is, is a thing as well. Everything else, you could you can see the rationale maybe to a patient benefit. We, uh, you're making all the arguments to me that we've made <laughs> to government and the Department of Health um, and to the Secretary of State directly, in that we can't see any patient benefit in this. Um, it's unfair because it singles out GPs. We, you know, we're the only independent contractors in the NHS who've been singled out. Pharmacy, opton, dentistry haven't. GPs in other nations of the UK haven't been made to declare. Other doctors in the NHS aren't declaring. Other high earners in the NHS aren't having to claim it. It's just GPs in England, and that's that's inequitable. Unfortunately, that's not legally challengeable. It's not discriminatory because we're not a being a GP isn't a protected characteristic, though maybe we should be with the number of GPs who are leaving all the time. Um, so, yes, we've made all the arguments. It doesn't help patients. It's going to increase risk of abuse towards practice staff and GPs. Um, and we've already had GPs telling us they're just going to retire instead of having to declare. 
and and that you know means every GP that leaves, I say it again and again, is 2,200 patients who haven't got a GP. Those GP those patients have to be then cared for by another GP, and it adds extra burden to them and makes them more likely to leave. So it's a spiral, um, and it's just a bad policy that could two previous health secretaries had paused it and seen that the that it wasn't a good policy. So it's just a shame the current health secretary didn't agree. Yes, I think that's a fair summary of the situation, Kieran. Um, I think um, it's it's a, it's a sadly non-positive end to the updates on the on the contract um, changes. Um, but the positives are that being a GP is incredibly great work um, and has many many great things that bring us back day after day. Um, I guess in the light of everything we've discussed, Kieran, um, so where are we now then and, and what's the next steps for, for colleagues in practices to consider and obviously next steps for your good selves um, at GPC? And I think that you know, you, you're totally right about highlighting the great job that general practice still is. Even though we work exceptionally long hours and it's very tiring and lots of people are stressed and, and, and feeling the pinch, every day we know we help patients and every day we know our, our patients who, who are our in our communities and in, in many time cases our friends, um, you know, that's a rewarding job, isn't it? So what we are hoping to do is sit down with government and agree a contract for 24 onwards that is beneficial for patients, which is beneficial for practices and strengthens the NHS. However, if that doesn't happen, we need to have some form of lever that persuades them that, that is worthwhile doing. Um, so what we're asking is that the colleagues across the country, you know, engage with us in you know, feeding back what they want in a new contract but also what they would be willing to do if we don't get the contract we need. So that would be some form of industrial action. What will practices, practitioners do? Now, we're going to come to you and say, we think this is the best form of industrial action if we need it. And we hope we don't need to use it. We hope the government sits down and negotiates. But if we do, we need the strong voice of colleagues to say we will take some form of action. And in the worst case scenario, if we need to take that action. And now we're talking about things like um, closing lists, and capping workload for a certain period of time. So, you know, 20 contacts a day um, just to deal with emergencies or maybe even, you know, full day closures of GP practices. And these are the options we're talking about. These are the options that the committee will discuss later in the month of April. Um, and, you know, we will come out if government doesn't take our negotiation seriously. So what we ask is that GPs um, think about what's best for their patients long term and not taking action is no longer an option. If we continue to see the derogation of general practice the way it is at the moment, uh, patients will come to more harm. We, they're already coming to harm because of, we're overworked. But if, if, we, if general practice is eroded even further, patients will come to harm in the long term. So taking one or two days or three days or four days of action is actually safer for patients than not taking action in the long term. Hopefully it won't come to that. Um, but, you know, people should join the BMA so they get our correspondence. They should join the BMA so they can vote in the ballot and they should, um, you know, keep a close eye on what we're doing. And if we do ask if you're willing to take um, action, then then please, you know, say yes, um, because that's what's going to save general practice for the benefit of our patients. Thanks. Thanks, Kira. That's a useful summary of where we are. I think it's it's always a challenge for colleagues, isn't it? Because we, we worry that anything that might be done um, to um, show how concerned we are about 
the way general practice is being treated and, and uh, by government, etc. We worry about the risks to patients. But I think, you know, you're quite right. We need to step back and, and just think what happens if we don't consider um, what's happening to patients right now with the, as we talked about, all the things that potentially are challenges for practices in the new contracts um, and anything else that might come up in the future. But it's really hard. I think colleagues struggle with that, don't they? So it'd be really useful when that information comes out from your good cells about what options may be, should colleagues um, decide that they want to do something. And certainly joining the BMA is is very useful, um, and particularly in, in taking part in, in any ballot, in digital ballots, etc. Um, so the, the way you were talking there, that's, you, you're thinking about what action could be taken if negotiations perhaps don't go um, as we'd like them to go for next year. Um, and if that's the case, I guess colleagues in different systems and obviously particularly for us in, in Lincolnshire need to be thinking about how the new contract and the other pressures on their practices are impacting their patients and, them, and, and, and themselves and their colleagues um, and what they are currently doing that needs to be looked at and changed potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying we won't take action before the negotiations for next year. The committee may decide that actually the imposition this year was enough to make us to want to take action this year. Um, because, you know, that's certainly the strength of feeling amongst the profession at the moment is that the imposition, no support for inflationary rises, could be reason to take action. Um, but you asked what sort of the next steps were in terms of the contract. So, um, you know, that's why I, I've talked about sitting down with NHS England and, and trying to get the best for the next 24 contract. Um, but, you know, we may we may need to take industrial action now to, to get this year's uplift that we need to continue um, providing services. The second question was, as a, as a side to that, in tandem with that, perhaps colleagues um, could be thinking about what they're currently doing as part of the services they provide that is either unfunded or not financially viable or giving any specific patient benefit that they might want to consider whether that's some, you know, what options they have in terms of those services. Absolutely. I, I mean, we always advocate that if, if work gets pushed to general practice that isn't meant to be in their contract, so things that, you know, the hospital standard contract says that hospitals should be doing, you know, push back on it, you know, fit notes they should have done in A&E or outpatients, um, prescriptions that should have been done, um, you know, where we're asked to organise tests on behalf of a, a specialist, you know, you know, maybe, you know, do it with a patient in front of you, but then push it back and say, I've done it this time, but I won't do it again. Um, because, you know, unless we keep telling the hospital they're doing the wrong thing, they just won't change. Um, uh, and it's not the doctors in the hospital. It's, it's the system that allows it to happen. So don't feel bad about your colleagues, you know, be respectful to them and educate them. I've done it this time, but I'm not going to do it again. That's one thing. The other thing is that there's a role for the LMC here. If there's an enhanced service that was agreed five, six, ten years ago and the funding was agreed then, well, has it been uplifted? If it hasn't been uplifted, then it's definitely not worth doing anymore financially. You know, if, you, if you're if you're receiving, let's say, twelve pound an hour for doing phlebotomy, but uh, you're uh, getting you're getting funded twelve pound an hour, but it's costing you a lot more than that to actually pay a, a healthcare assistant or phlebotomist to do it. So it's not it's it's making you make a loss. Now it's good for the patients, and and that's why it should be funded properly. Um, and there's lots of enhanced services where I think that the LMC should actually look and see when it was last uplifted and whether there have been inflationary increases to it. 
you know, if if the cost of paying your staff to monitor shared care drugs has has doubled, well, has the funding doubled? If it hasn't, then is it really worth doing? It's your system's choice to fund it properly. And so you should go back and, and get every practice to look to see what enhanced services they're doing and whether they're actually properly funded. Yeah, totally agree, Kieran. Um, we're currently doing that uh, in Lincolnshire, uh, collating a list of services and a, and a calculator for practices to um, work out you know, the viability of these services, and particularly in, you know, and, and referring that to to the patient benefit potentially as well, because if there's no patient benefit and um, it's not particularly financially viable, practices may feel more comfortable not providing that service. And um, and we, yeah, so we will welcome practices feeding back through that um, piece of work that we're doing. And we're already seeing the uplifts um, for this financial year, despite the uh, inflationary um, cost being very, very small for a couple of enhanced services in Lincolnshire. Um, so I think it really is the time to be looking at that much um, in much more detail. So um, that's really useful. Thanks, Kieran. Um, and one other item was um, just about workforce returns. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to mention this because we know that um, practices complete the national workforce return every every month, um, and that sort of informs the NHS what what work we're doing. Um, but what they don't actually see is the real work we're doing, because what happens is you might say, well, I'm a, a an eight session doctor, and so I'm, I'm contracted nominally to do eight sessions, so I do eight hour eight times four hours and twenty minutes. But actually, if your session is seven hours long because you're working before your session starts and after your session finishes, and then you're going home and doing some work in the evening, that doesn't count. That's you know. So say put down that you're actually doing the seventy hours you're doing, not not the eight times four hours twenty minutes. Um, so you know, if you were working ten sessions, that'd be four hours. Uh, how many hours? It's forty something hours, isn't it? But actually, mm -hmm. most people are doing significantly more than that. So what we need to do is get our practice managers or the, the doctor who's returned doing filling in the workforce returns to fill them in to show the NHS what we're actually doing. Now that has a double edged sword for us because one side it suddenly makes it look like there's lots more doctors out there. So the government can turn around and go, oh, look, we found a thousand more doctors, but the actual headcount won't change. So we can rebut that that accusation. But what it does is when people say, oh, you're earning 156,000, which is the declaration uh, sum, but you're only doing 30 hours a week. It makes it sound like you're earning a lot of money for not doing much work. But actually, if you really put down the number of hours you worked and you're doing 70 hours a week, it makes 150,000 sound much more reasonable. And we know the reason people are earning well is because they're working very long hours. So report in the NHS workforce return that you're doing it. And that's something that would really help us. And so other things that we're trying to do to, to improve data is better recording of appointments, so uh, if, if you see a patient or telephone them, you probably put it onto your appointment book. But when you do admin tasks like looking at letters and things, you don't put that into your appointment book. But we know that's all clinical work. So we need to find some way of measuring that extra clinical work. Now, maybe that's having a list of appointments that you make, which aren't actually appointments, but it's time that you're doing work for patient X and patient Y, and you put them in as an appointment, an administrative appointment. So we're looking at how we can improve that data capture of what work we're doing. Because at the moment, we're accused of not working hard enough and earning too much. But I would argue that we're earning just about the right amount or maybe a little less than we should be, but we're working twice as hard as we should. Uh, and so, um, you know, maybe we should be earning a lot more for the number of hours we're doing. 
Yeah, no, I think that's really, really important and useful point, Kieran, because I think historically, we, you're right, we've not been particularly great at capturing that activity data uh, and the hours because colleagues work really long hours and it's almost accepted as the norm, isn't it? But yes, to reflect to the system how hard we're working, we've got to show those hours. And I think that um, upswing in, in recording of appointments, because practices do do it differently across the board, is also crucial in that because then the two data sets marry up pretty well, don't they? And it helps you and your colleagues when you're having these discussions in negotiation. If the extra 20% of appointments is actually an extra 40 or 50%, um, I think the system would be flabbergasted, although they may suspect what happens, they'd be flabbergasted to see those real-term numbers and the hours our colleagues are working. Yeah. So yeah, I'd strongly encourage colleagues to do that. Thanks, Kieran. Um, is there any other um, areas we think we need to discuss? Um, we've travelled through quite a lot, I think, uh, in that uh, discussion, Kieran, so really appreciate it. Are there any other items you'd want to add from a, a GPC England perspective? No, just keep up the good work. Or from being all, a Lincolnshire GP. Yeah, we, 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 we keep up the good work. We're all fighting the good fight. Um, advocate for your patients and just remember, at some point, we may need to take some form of industrial action. And that's for the benefit of our patients long term. So not taking action will probably do more harm than taking action if it, if it comes to that. Thanks, Karen, for that, that summary point there. I think um, everything we do is for benefit of patients, even if um, sometimes... Um, governmental and, and media colleagues and even some of our patients when they're frustrated don't um, fully appreciate that um, but we really thank you for your time today I hope it's been really helpful for colleagues um, do contact us here at, at Lincolnshire LMC with any questions you have about it um, do uh, contact uh, Kieran and the team if there is anyone who uh, didn't submit their vaccines um, uh, in time and haven't had a payment as a result and they'll pick that up on your behalf and then Kieran and his team will fight the good fight for us and keep us updated on any progress and we'll be back in touch with all practices um, uh, regarding the um, enhanced services piece of work that we're looking at and also if there is any further national discussion around action that, and options for practices. So thanks again Kieran, brilliant having you um, and uh, enjoy the rest of your I'm sure extremely busy day. Thanks for having me and uh, see you soon. Cheers Kieran.